This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Today's Crop Report is an excerpt from law professor Roger McGowan speaking on K-State's Ag Today radio. In this report, Dr. McGowan is covering what is required for an asset to be allowed to be depreciable on next year's taxes. Farmers who often own millions of dollars in buildings, equipment, and other assets rely heavily on depreciation. Roger explains, however, that the asset can't merely be something that has been purchased for future use, but something that is completed or delivered and ready for use by the end of the year. This is especially important for this time of year when farmers often make big end-of-the-year purchases to reduce their tax liabilities. Here is Dr. McGowan explaining this placed in-service rule. Depreciation uh, in uh, tax allowance for the exhaustion or wearing out of an asset that's used in a taxpayer's trader business. So we see it uh, used heavily by farmers and ranchers. In fact, the depreciation schedule for a farmer and rancher takes up probably the largest portion of many of them for their tax return. Page after page after page of schedules of depreciation for many farm assets, from tractors and combines to trucks, any type of equipment, other tangible property that's used in the business that has an exhaustion factor and has a useful life of more than a year and is not real estate is generally going to be depreciable under one of various methods. We have to meet a placed-in-service rule, and that's the measuring rule that IRS uses to determine the first tax year in which an asset that's used in the trader business of farming is eligible to be depreciated, and when you can start that depreciation. And what that basically means is that the asset is ready and available for use in your trader business. And just simply signing a contract does not mean that the asset that you've purchased, even though you've paid for it, is necessarily ready and available for use or could be used in your business if you wanted to. So if I sign a contract to build a building, uh, to have a building built on my farm that I'm going to use in my farm business, then I need to um, have more than just simply a pile of lumber dropped in my barnyard by December 31st. I need to have that structure up and ready for me to use it as of December 31. Same thing for buying a tractor, buying a combine. Has it been assembled? Has it been delivered to the dealer? Is it serviced? Is it ready to go? It would meet the definition of placed in service. Now, if it's ready to go, but it's at a dealer a thousand miles from my farm, that's a different issue. But if it's ready and available to use uh, and it's ready at the dealer and I could pick it up, take it to my farm and start using it by December 31, that's enough. I don't actually have to use it. It's just ready and available for use as of the end of the tax year. But these ads that indicate that all you have to do is sign a contract, that's not enough. And IRS is not going to agree with that at all. This is something important to keep in mind for farmers considering making end-of-the-year equipment and machinery purchases, but likely won't receive it until next year. Although I'm personally not an expert on ag taxes and law, there are those at K-State Extension who we can ask please give me a call at 620-778-1037. This has been James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell with the Wildcat Extension District, your Livestock Production Agent. What would you suppose the best time of year would be to work on livestock handling facilities? I would suggest the time of year that the facilities are not being used or when you have some time to put some thought and effort into their design. I would also suggest avoiding the time when the cowboys are bringing the critters into the pen or when the vet is on his way. 
The purposes of a good set of working pens are to provide a fast and efficient way to handle livestock and provide safe working conditions for people and animals. And not to be overlooked, a good set of handling facilities will provide a means to perform necessary management practices such as herd vaccination or loading animals out for transportation. There is not one single design that is best for everyone. The design will vary depending on the type of livestock and even the class of animals, such as stalkers versus cow-calf pairs. The size of the operation, space restrictions, and personal preferences will all play a factor in the design process. If you're looking down the barrel of designing a facility, be sure to do your research. There are commercial alley and tub systems that are easy to adjust, but might be pricey. Some are even portable. You may consider working with a consultant, or you can call your local extension office for resources. There are many strategies to be considered, like a bud box design or curved alleys, and you can even combine several strategies into one design that will be best for your operation. Keep in mind that domesticated livestock have a field of vision of more than 300 degrees, so they can see quite a bit of their surroundings. So it's helpful when loading ramps and handling chutes have solid walls. This prevents animals from seeing distractions. Animals have a tendency to move from dark areas to lighter areas, provided that the light isn't glaring. You can add a spotlight directly onto a ramp or other area that will help animals move naturally into that direction. You can also use the animal's natural flight zone to move them quietly into the direction you need them to go. Consider the sounds and loud noises around the working facilities. Some equipment is really loud and can be unnerving for animals, especially if they are not handled regularly. When you minimize the use of prods that bruise or shock, you can reduce stress. There are prods that have flags or rattle paddles that are just as effective and less stressful. Reducing stress on the animal will reduce injuries and sickness for the animal as well as the employee. And this will increase overall efficiency. For more information, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is the David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Normal body temperature of rabbits is 102 to 103 degrees Fahrenheit. An outside temperature of 60 to 65 degrees is the temperature where rabbits can use their feed most efficiently and gain weight the easiest. However, rabbits can handle temperatures of 20 to 60 degrees if they are protected from direct contact of wind, rain, and snow. If the change in weather isn't too severe, rabbits can usually adapt fairly well. But if the weather changes quickly or the stress caused by the weather change is too great, rabbits may not be able to adjust. Healthy rabbits can endure short-term stress fairly well, but long-term stress will eventually affect the rabbit. The stress of the cold months during the winter can be very hard on rabbits, 
both domestic and wild. If the rabbit's hutch is not winterized, it can cause rabbits to not breed, gain weight, and affect their physical appearance, which will affect how well the rabbits compete in shows. Winter-related stresses for rabbits can include low temperatures, poor ventilation, drafts, and poor nutrition, including lack of drinking water. To protect rabbits from wind, you can face the hutches to the southeast to protect them from the northwest winds. Setting the rabbit's hutch next to a building or solid fence or covering the hutch with a lightweight blanket or tarp will also provide protection from the wind. It is important to remember that ventilation is just as important in the winter as it is in the summer. Unfortunately, the measures you take to keep your rabbits warm and dry may also restrict airflow in the hutches, which can make the hutch damp and let foul odors and ammonia fumes build up. Airflow in hutches can vary with the weather, so it is important to watch weather conditions and adjust the airflow as needed. Make sure that there is a little air movement through the hutch without drafts, pockets of stale air, or sudden temperature changes. In the winter, rabbits will eat more to make up for the extra energy they use to stay warm. Because of this, it is important to provide rabbits with plenty of food and fresh water. It is also important to make sure they have consistent access to water as it will freeze quickly if the temperature is at or below freezing. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been Adavin Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Trees are once again our theme for the week, where we will talk about oaks. Oaks belong in the Quercus genus, and there are 500 different species of oaks you can choose for your landscape. Oaks are sorted into one of two broad categories. Red oaks have pointed leaf lobes, and white oaks have rounded leaf lobes. Red oaks will be slightly more common in our region than whites, but both do well here. Knowing what group of oaks your specific tree is in is important for determining what potential diseases could affect it and how long you will need to leach acorns if you decide to eat them. Oaks have several maintenance pointers to keep in mind. Oaks are generally not fussy trees and so will require minimal pruning. However, as they mature, the tree's lowest branches will start failing to put out leaves. This is not a sign of poor health, but rather the tree conserving energy by not growing leaves on branches that will be shaded out by higher branches in the canopy. These branches can be pruned out once these symptoms start showing. Oaks also commonly have lichens growing on the bark at their bases. Lichens are a symbiotic fungus that begin showing up once algae appears on the bark. This usually takes the form of silver flakes and will not harm the tree either. One final thing to keep in mind is the texture and depth of the soil where you want to put an oak. Oaks are one of the few trees that grow their roots outward more than downward. This can lead to complete uprooting in violent storms. Prudent watering during the summer will encourage the roots to dig deeper in search of moisture and nutrients, which leads to a stronger root system and a lower chance of uprooting. 
Acorns have been foraged as a food source for thousands of years and provide a good source of at-home protein and calories. However, they need some prep work before they become palatable. The primary chemical found in the meat of an acorn is tannic acid, the same chemical found in red wine. In general, red oak acorns will have more tannic acid than white oak acorns and will need to be leached longer in order to make them palatable. Some foragers recommend putting acorns that need to leach into a toilet's basin. With each flush, the water is replaced and more tannic acid filters out. Any acorns you gather that are still attached to their caps were aborted and will not have a full acorn inside. These, as well as any with obvious entry holes from weevil larvae, should be discarded. With the ice storm on Tuesday night, many trees have suffered partial limb breakage. It is important to give these wounds a clean cut to initiate the healing response in the tree. If the wound is not cut back, the tree cannot compartmentalize the wound and this gives decay a chance to enter the rest of the tree. Wood does not compost easily and should not be included in compost piles. Instead, use it in fire pits, brush piles, or discard it as yard waste. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.